0: Acts 2, and 45 says the first believers had all things common and sold their possessions and goods, and part of them to all men as every man had need. Does this mean the Bible advocates a form of Christian socialism? Keep listening to hear Dr. David K. Bernard's response. Welcome to Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, a podcast dedicated to helping modern-day believers live out the teachings of the first century church. This podcast is part of the teaching ministry of Dr. David K. Bernard. Dr. Bernard has dedicated his life to studying the Bible and helping believers apply its message to their daily lives. In apostolic life in the 21st century, Dr. Bernard answers your questions about what the Bible teaches and how those teachings apply to everyday life. Thank
1: you for joining us for this episode. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Dr. David K. Bernard. As General Superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church International, I want to invite you to join me September 19 through 22nd in Indianapolis, Indiana for our annual General Conference. General Conference is an opportunity to experience firsthand what God is doing across North America and around the world through the ministry of the United Pentecostal Church International. Last year's General Conference in Orlando, Florida was one of the best in recent memory. We're expecting God to do great things again at this year's General Conference. You can visit upcigc.com and subscribe to email updates to learn more about what's happening at this year's General Conference. I look forward to seeing you later this year in Indianapolis. God bless.
0: Acts two, forty-four through and forty-five says something that has raised maybe a few eyebrows among those of us who live in capitalist free market economies in the West. Luke records this, he said, And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, some have used these verses and a few others from the book of Acts to argue that apostolics should adopt a communal lifestyle and begin pooling our resources. Is that what the Bible is trying to say here? And if not, how should we interpret these verses?
1: No, I don't believe the Bible is trying to tell us uh, that we should uh, adopt communal living or socialism or communism or something like that. Um, I don't think it's wrong, perhaps, for some people to try to um, establish some kind of uh, farm or communal existence if they so desire, but I don't think that is the direct fulfillment of scripture. Uh, what was going on in acts two, you have the birthday of the Christian church and you have the, the new church presented as a paradigm as an example, but it's a temporary situation. So you have to understand that thousands of Jews had come from different countries. Um, There are 15 different nationalities mentioned in Acts 2. They'd come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And at that point, thousands were converted. The initial 120 disciples plus 3,000 on that first day. So obviously, many of them were from these other countries. um, And they were planning to go back to those countries. But probably many stayed in Jerusalem to be part of this new church. They were expecting the Lord to come back. I don't think they had any idea that it would be 2,000 years or more. They probably thought in a few weeks. So initially, you had thousands of believers from different countries staying in Jerusalem, waiting for the Lord to come back. Well, after a few days, you have practical logistics. Where are they going to sleep? What are they going to eat? And then you also had many of the early Christians are very poor. And so the Bible explains that the Christians had so much love so much unity, so much working together that as these needs arose, people would say, well, I have a piece of land. I'll sell it. I'll give it to the apostles and you can split it up whoever needs it. These people from another country or these very poor people, you know, and somebody says, well, well, you know, I've got a maybe an extra house or I've got a big house I don't need. I'll sell it. Uh, I'll move in with my son or I'll buy a smaller house. And so uh, Acts 2 describes the a sacrificial giving and unity. It also describes some other they continued steadfastly, Acts 242, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. So they prayed together. They ate together. And I think that included the Lord's Supper, but also uh, meals together, fellowship, which which we do. It is apostolic to to have dinner before or after church. Uh or or within reason, you know, uh good stewardship of the body. Uh so they continued in prayer they continued in worship they went from house to house and to the temple so it's giving a holistic picture to say they were so unified that they gave sacrificially they gave to help their brothers and sisters now to jump from that to say they all joined a commune or they sold all their homes and they all bought a piece of land and they all moved in together uh, that's not correct because in acts four, you find them doing it again. So apparently somebody still kept some houses. Um, uh, then in acts five, you find Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of property and they lied about what they were giving. The apostle Peter made it very clear. It was your own. You could do what you wanted with it. And after it was sold, you could have kept whatever amount of money you wanted. But the fact that you lied, the judgment of God has come. And then even later, Acts chapter 12, you find the early church having prayer meeting in the house of John Mark's mother. So at least John Mark's mother still had a house. And of course, the standard model, uh, if you read Romans 16 and many other passages, there were churches in different houses. So Romans 16 probably is referencing uh, five house churches in the city of Rome. Uh, then you, you read 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul talks about raising up offerings to help the poor in Jerusalem. He talks about supporting him in missions. 1st Corinthians 16 talks about collecting money once on the first day of the week. So presumably they all met on the first day. They would bring an offering and save it up. So if they're all living communally, uh, they, they, they wouldn't need to be taking weekly offerings. So as the church moved from those early days, you also have to remember that that early situation didn't last very long because persecution came, it scattered them to many cities. And you also have to remember in AD 70, the Romans would conquer and destroy Jerusalem. God knew that the early believers didn't know that. So those who tried to maintain all their possessions and pass it on to their descendants and amass personal wealth and create estates, all that would have been destroyed. God knowing that prompted them to invest in the kingdom of God where it would be of lasting value. So that doesn't necessarily mean that would be a model for 2,000 years, all countries of the world. So I think what we learn from Acts is sacrificial giving, unity, supporting the work of God, the kingdom of God, supporting the poor, especially those in the church. But As time goes on, you have local churches, you have houses to live in, you collect weekly offerings, you support the ministry, and that's the model we follow. Now, let me just say a word about capitalism. While we as the church don't promote any particular political party or secular system, I do believe the basic thought of capitalism is based on private property and free market. And that is based on Christian principles, because what you see in the scripture is Every person is accountable to God individually for their own decisions. Every person has unique worth before God, should be treated as an individual. And even though the Middle East was a communal, uh, l- let's say more, I shouldn't say communal, but the, the culture was, um, more collective is the the term that sociologists use. A collectivist culture where you think of the needs of the group. You think of your family. You think of your tribe. You think of your neighborhood. You think of your society more than yourself, whereas Western culture is based on individualism. So there is a balance there, but the total collectivist idea is not consistent with Scripture because Scripture holds each person accountable before God as an individual. And then Genesis talks about earning your bread from the sweat of your brow. So, and, and Paul even talks about if you don't work, you don't eat. So there's this principle, you should be responsible if you're able-bodied, of course, and so forth. You're responsible to earn your own living, to pay your own way, so to speak. Well, that also indicates that we should respect private property. If I work hard for something, for my bread, my food, I deserve to keep that bread. Well, if I earn some money and I'm able to buy a car or a house, that represents my work. It's not your work. So for you or for the government to take that car from me, you're not just taking something I possess. You're taking part of my life. You're taking part of my the sweat of my brow. You're taking part of my time that I invested in. So respecting private property Really goes back to respecting the individual and respecting individual labor. And uh, socialism and communism are based on an idealistic philosophy that doesn't work in the real world, um, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. It sounds great, you know, if you can, whoever can work, you work, and, and whatever you need will give you what you need. But it fails because it doesn't respect the individual. And it fails because it depends on idealistic view of human nature when actually humans are sinful. So maybe in heaven, we can all share and it doesn't matter. But on earth, if you have a system where if you can work, you need to work hard, but, uh, whether you work or not, we'll give you what you need. Well, that it creates a perverse incentive, which has been proven In communist and socialist societies, the 21st century, we did a massive worldwide experiment and we proved that it doesn't work because collectivist farms in the Soviet Union where everybody had to work together would only produce a fraction of the output. But when they allowed people to have private gardens, they were vastly more productive than these big collective farms because people on the collective farms, they knew if I don't work hard, it doesn't make any difference how much I get. But in my private garden... I get exactly what I put into it. And so uh, a socialistic or or a communal system rewards the inefficient and the lazy and the slacker and the cheater, and it punishes the hard worker. Whereas capitalism, um, I'm not saying it's perfect because we're in an imperfect world, so no system is perfect. But done right, with respect for individual labor, respect for private property, free market, with regulations to, you know, to uh, to minimize theft and fraud and cheating and, and pollution that's unnecessary or detrimental. You know, there have got to be safeguards. So no system is perfect. But when you put all the safeguards, capitalism is proven to get the maximum in a positive way out of people. And it's, it's, uh, Maximum productivity, maximum creativity, new invention, but also people's choice. So they get to choose what they value. If they don't want to work extra, they don't have to. It's a trade off. Um, and some people make good choices and some people make bad choices. But the point is instead of the government making your choices for you, the individual can make choices what do I value? My time, my money, uh, new possessions, or you know, I get to choose and allocate. And the whole idea of the free market is no matter how smart somebody is, no one person, no oligarchy, no group of experts, no governmental bureaucracy can perfectly allocate all across the world who needs how much food here and who needs how much clothing here and who needs this uh machinery here nobody can figure that out but the market does it automatically through prices if you don't have enough of a certain commodity the price goes up and so people flock to meet that need and so the mar- market is constantly regulating itself you know without any mastermind you know the needs and the resources are allocated as they should be now obviously because of people's fraud and greed and sin that can be distorted. And that's why you need to have government and you need to have ethics and uh, you need to have the rule of law. Uh, But I I guess what I'm summarizing is saying, actually respecting uh, private property, free market and individual labor is really based in biblical concepts. And uh, I lived in, I grew up in Korea South Korea was a dictatorship. North Korea was 20 miles away. It was a communist dictatorship, and we saw firsthand the difference. Even today, communist North Korea is in a very poor state of development with frequent famines, with much death, uh, practically no liberty, whereas South Korea has become one of the marvels of the world with a, a vibrant 21st century, highly technological economy. It's a perfect social experiment because here you had two groups of people with the same culture, the same background, the same education, the same resources. If anything, North Korea had more resources, but yet two different models of economics, and the results are drastically different. Well, to summarize, uh, the role of the church, of course, is is not economic, but uh, we can say that Acts 2 teaches the principles of unity, fellowship, supporting the poor, supporting missions, supporting the church, but it doesn't uh, teach us that we should live communally or that we should adopt a socialistic or communist uh, model for the economy. Thank you for listening to this episode of
0: Apostolic Life in the 21st Century.